In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord spoke to Judah through the prophet Joel in a time when the land was pretty much being scoured clean by a devastating plague of locusts. We don't know exactly when this happened, only that it was probably sometime after Judah's return from exile in Babylon. We get a sense of the severity of the plague in the first chapter of Joel, where we read that the locusts have consumed even the vines and stripped the fig trees of their bark. Vines and and tree bark are not normal locust food. They're what locusts would turn to once everything else has been consumed. So it tells us there's something unnatural about this plague of locusts. Perhaps this might just be the Lord's doing, because normally locusts would move on to where their normal food is. But they've stayed behind, and they're consuming everything. They're scouring the land. And the vine and the fig tree, those were symbols for Israel of peace and prosperity. So their consumption by the locusts tells us just how desperate the situation was. As Joel 1.13 notes, even the priests were lamenting before the altar because there was neither grain nor drink left in the land to offer to the Lord. Not even enough to offer the Lord's sacrifices. So over and over, the prophet talks about the day of the Lord. And that's a day that Israel looked forward to with eager anticipation. The Lord's going to come and set everything right. One day the Lord would arise from his throne. This is the God who had tamed chaos and created order for the cosmos, for the flourishing of human beings. And they said, he will come and he will set it all right once again. The Lord would arise to bring justice to his people. But Israel's perspective, how she saw herself in relation to the day of the Lord, it wasn't quite right. Because Israel always saw herself when these things happened, she always saw herself as the innocent victim. So on the day of the Lord, her enemies would be vanquished and she would be vindicated. Or in this case, on the day of the Lord, he'll get rid of the locusts and we'll be fine. But in those days in Israel, it occurred to very few people that the day of the Lord might turn out to be a judgment on Israel's own sins. Perhaps these locusts were a foretaste of what was coming with the day of the Lord. And this gets at the heart of Joel's prophecy. The day of the Lord has come, and his own people have found themselves the focus, the center of his judgment. So the book is a call to repentance, Judah stands condemned for having offered the outward sacrifices of grain and oil while the people had not really dedicated their hearts to the Lord. They went through the outward motions. But Joel reminds the people, this is not the end. The purpose of the Lord's discipline is to bring repentance, and then with repentance comes restoration. It's a theme we see over and over throughout Scripture. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Return to me. You keep offering the the outward motions. Give me your hearts. Now, does that mean the outward 
trappings of religion and of repentance are bad or that they're not necessary? No, because through the, the prophet, the Lord summons his people to fast, to weep, and to mourn. But to do it this time from the heart as evidence of real repentance. So in case they're tempted to make a show, a show of rending their garments, which is what people in that culture did when they wanted to show repentance, the Lord declares, fine, rend your garments. But it's more important that you first rend your hearts. Rend your garments because you're sorry for what you've done. And it's not just about individual people doing it. Through Joel, the Lord stresses the need for corporate repentance, too. The priests, he says, are to take their place between the vestibule and the altar, to weep and cry out for mercy while the entire nation joins them, the elders and the children. He says even the bride and bridegroom are to set their honeymoon aside so that the whole nation can come and take part in this corporate act of repentance. And in response to the honest repentance of the nation, the Lord promises restoration. Even that one day he will solve Israel's heart problem by pouring out his own spirit. And that day, he says, he will establish his people forever and put an end to their enemies. I mean, that's what they wanted. But they've got to go through this other stuff first. They have to repent. They have to truly turn to the Lord. So just as we begin Lent... Our epistle points us here as it promises the Spirit. It points us ahead to Easter. We don't go into Lent with no light at the end of the tunnel. We're pointed to Easter. Joel points us to the age to come that will come out of the empty tomb with Jesus. Even as we're reminded by the old Israel of the importance of penitence, both as individuals and corporately as the church, we're also reminded that we are not the old Israel. We're the new Israel. We are the people who live on the other side, on this side of the Lord's promise to pour out his spirit. And if we turn over to today's gospel, then we see Jesus addressing the same old problem. Again, there were many people in Israel. They continued to put on a show of outward piety, but their hearts were not close to the Lord. And Jesus warns that those who put on a show for others have received all they will ever receive for all their efforts. They may receive respect and honor from the people around them, but they haven't moved God, unless maybe it's to judgment. I mean, think again of that image of the day of the Lord, that day when the people of Israel anticipated the Lord coming to defeat their enemies, to set everything to rights, to reign forever. And many people fasted and they made public acts of repentance in anticipation of that day. Jesus' warning in light of that should have been frightening. As the Messiah, he was setting in motion the events that would culminate in the day of the Lord, the events that Joel had prophesied. And here he warns that the people who have made an insincere show of repentance, they're not going to have a share in that day when it comes. Or, well, to be more specific or to be more accurate, they will have a share in that day but it's not the share they're hoping for. Instead of deliverance, they're going to know judgment. Instead, it's going to be those who, to to use the language of Joel, it'll be those who have rent their hearts rather than their garments. 
It'll be those whom the Father will see and reward. They are the ones who will know the age to come. So Jesus says, let your investment be in the age to come. Investments in the things of this age will not last. Moth and rust corrupt, thieves break in and steal. More importantly, our investments in the values and systems of the present evil age, they're really pretty foolish in light of the resurrection of Jesus. He has inaugurated the age to come. I mean, people in Joel's day, they, they, they were still in the dark. They're looking forward to this. We're here. The age to come may not be fully present, but it's been inaugurated. It's the future. It's our future. I mean, think of our epistle from this past Sunday, from 1 Corinthians 13, where St. Paul waxes eloquent about love. And at the end, he says, You know, if even the good God-given gifts of tongues and prophecy will one day cease to have a purpose when the age to come has been consummated, when God's future finally arrives, how much more ought we to hold lightly to the praises of others and to the investments and in the values and systems and institutions of the age that's passing away? like throwing your money into a bank that's on fire. Instead, Jesus encourages his people to lay up treasures in heaven, in God's future, where our promised inheritance lies, in his new creation. Jesus has healed the breach between heaven and earth, the one that was caused by our sin and rebellion. He's brought it back together, and instead of judgment, we have a part in it. One day, heaven and earth will come back together fully. One day, as the Jews had always hoped, everything's going to be set to rights. (coughs) Evil will be wiped from the face of the earth. Our tears will be wiped away. (coughs) Redeemed humanity. We will live in the presence of God and will do it in a way that Israel camped around the tabernacle as but a shadow in the presence of God. It is that dawning age into which we ought to be investing, knowing that what we do out of love for God and love for each other in this age, that is what will last into the age to come. Like Paul says, prophecy and tongues, all that other stuff. That's temporary. But our investment in love, Christ-like love, that is what will last. So Israel struggled with repentance. The people surrounding Jesus struggled with repentance. They lived in anticipation of the fulfillment of the Lord's promise to pour out his spirit and to set right the hearts of his people. And there is, in light of that, then, an important difference between our season of penitence and theirs. Because we live on the fulfillment side of the Lord's promise. We are the people redeemed by Jesus at the cross. We are the people in whom the Spirit of God lives, and that changes everything. Nevertheless, we too live in anticipation of the day when it will all finally be done. And so it's just as important for us to set our eyes on Jesus and to commit ourselves to investing in the things of of his kingdom. 
So, brothers and sisters, this is the purpose of our own Lenten fast. Each year, the church calls us to slow down, to take a break, and to fast in some way, shape, or form so that we can, for at least these few weeks, invest some time that we wouldn't normally invest in considering God's Word and thinking on the Gospel and in meditating on what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. To think on God's love for us revealed in Jesus. And to use this time to make a point of being deliberate about our love for each other, and especially our love for the poor and needy, so that as we come closer to Easter, we will have our eyes more firmly set on Jesus and more firmly set on the new life and the new creation that lie before us. As you fast, focus your eyes on our Lord and remember that our hope lies in the future he has inaugurated. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.